Well, good morning. My name is Brian. I am one of the new pastors here at VCC, and it's a great joy and honor this morning to open God's Word with you. And so just being a short-timer on the scene, it is good to uh, have this opportunity again just to bring God's Word to us this morning as we continue our series, Meditations with John. Our identity series, we'll be looking at chapter 11 of the Gospel of John this morning. Now, one thing you should know about me, I love a little feedback. And so uh, if you guys could say amen or laugh or clap as appropriate, that would be super appreciated. I got my fan club back there. Thank you. The bell's back there. Like, yay. So I just love a little audience interaction. So the more you can give me, the more fired up I become. And it's just a joyous time. So, all right. I thought I would open up our message this morning with a familiar nursery rhyme. You probably know this by heart. You learned it as a kid. You've actually shared this with your own kids. It goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. Wow. I have one question as we start this morning. Why do we share this nursery rhyme with our kids? Like, it ends in tragedy, right? There's like no hope. In fact, as Paul Harvey would say, there's no rest of the story here, folks. Like, that's all she wrote. Like, I'm Googling. Like, there's got to be more to this nursery rhyme. There's got to be something of hope here in this story. Not a zip. That's the story. And I imagine that over the years, perhaps, as we've shared this story with kids throughout the generations, there's probably been some counseling sessions that have needed to be had because Humpty Dumpty could not be put back together again, right? Or the fact that, uh, you know, maybe there's some countless nightmares that have occurred because of poor old Humpty Dumpty. But I share this uh, nursery rhyme with you this morning because I think there's probably some who could identify with the story of Humpty Dumpty. You've sat on a wall, you've taken a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put you back together again. And to take it a little deeper, maybe you're here today and you've lost hope. You're wondering where God is, why isn't he answering your prayers. And uh, you're wondering, God, where are you? Where are you? Why haven't you responded to my situation? Why haven't you responded to my need? Well, this is a story that we enter into in John chapter 11. As we understand the story of Lazarus uh, coming uh, back to life. And this is just days before Jesus' crucifixion. In the timeline, you know, these are just days before Jesus would go into Jerusalem and give his very life so that we could have the hope of spending eternity with him. And uh, for those that understand the context here, uh, Jesus gets word that his good friend Lazarus is dying. And yet he delays his trip a few days because he wants to do something miraculous in their midst. But in that He understands that by going back to Bethany too, that there are some that want to stone him. The Jews want to stone him to death. And yet he goes back to bring comfort, hope, and a message that will resonate with our hearts today. The story is found in John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 17 through 45 together. It will be on the screens for those that want the Air Bible edition up there. And uh, otherwise, you've got a pew Bible in front of you you can grab hold of. But John chapter 11, this is what it reads. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. 
And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said these profound words to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going out of the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where the Jew, Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And when, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then these two profound words in verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he? Not he have opened the eyes of the blind man also, um, opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept the man from dying. Then he says this, and Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. And he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they might believe that you have sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Would you pray with me as we talk to God together? Father, we thank you for just the story that's recorded in this gospel that reminds us of the eternal truths of who you are and what you came to do, to bring life, to bring hope. And Father, in this moment, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to receive what it is that you would have us to learn today that would transform us in a resurrected way to a further, a deeper relationship with you, Father. May these truths transform us. And thank you for the hope that is in this message. Today, as we remember on this day known as 9-11, those that uh, gave their lives in service to others, those that perished because of the evil that came upon our land. Father, we pray that you would uh, just be an ever-present comfort and hope to them this day. 
and help us to remember that they will never be forgotten. Father, thank you that you came for moments like these to give us hope and to give us perspective. Again, open our minds that we might receive these truths. We ask in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen, amen. All right. Well, as we see here in the text, as the story goes along, Jesus' good friend Lazarus is dying. And so he delays his trip once again because he wants to display his glory in the situation. And he waits a few days. But upon coming into the scene, upon coming into the story, upon coming into Bethany, we realize that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. I mean, he was good and dead at this point, right? And Jesus encounters Martha, and you see in the story that Martha is clearly caught between disbelief and belief as she says this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, it's kind of a little bit like a tongue-in-cheek, like what, what caused your delay? If you were to be here, he would not have died. And Martha questions, but she hasn't given up on Jesus, as we see in the text in verse 22 when she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died, but I know that ultimately he will be raised again. But Jesus responds in this moment with this fifth I am statement. We see that in verses 25 and 26, this profound truth that Jesus responds to. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, uh, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is a declaration of profound truth. Because in this moment, Jesus is declaring his glory and his deity. All in the same breath. Now I want us to notice here in the text that Jesus is not saying, I resurrect dead people. He's not saying, I perform resurrections. He's not saying, you know, that this is some event. This is actually what he declares, I am the resurrection, I am the life. In other words, Jesus is the full embodiment of resurrection in life itself. It's all consumed within him. He is the one that restores. He is the one that resurrects dead people. It's embodied in him. And he will personally affect resurrection. And he will provide eternal life for all who believe. It is a claim to his de deity that he and the Father are one. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. And so in other words, Jesus is inviting Martha to consider the person who basically embodies resurrection rather than the event of resurrection himself. He's inviting her into a relationship with him. You see, without Jesus, there is no resurrection. He is not a way. He's not a truth. He is not a life. He's not a resurrection. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And this basically will be foretold future just in a few days because Jesus would come and die and resurrect himself into a new reality and into a new hope. That he would ultimately justify our sin condition and bring us right into right relationship with himself, not on the basis of what we, we do, but on the basis of what he accomplished on the cross for us. 
In other words, Jesus is making it obviously clear in this text that our object of our faith is in a person, not in an event. And there is no eternal life, there is no resurrection, there is no hope apart from the embodiment of Jesus himself being the resurrection and the life. This is what Acts 4.12 says, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by man in which you will be saved. No other name under heaven by which we will be saved. This is the embodiment of resurrection. This is the embodiment of life itself. He is the resurrection. And because of the gift of resurrection and life, we, are, we have been given a free and gracious relationship with the Savior himself. Because he is. And the question he asks of Martha in this statement is, do you believe that? Do you believe, not about me, but in me? Do you believe that I am the resurrection, that I am the life. You see, it's one thing to believe intellectually about something, right? To believe about something. In fact, the scriptures declare that even the demons believe in God and yet they shudder. This wasn't just a mere intellectual belief that Jesus was calling Martha to. This is the embodiment of I am into the fullness of who he's claiming to be in this moment, the resurrection and the life. It's quite different to volitionally believe in something, to embrace it, to put our full weight behind it. Martha's saying, I know that ultimately there will be resurrection because of what I read in the Old Testament, right? But in this reality is that ultimately she comes to this belief and says, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the one that came to bring hope and to restore us into right relationship with God. She was putting her full weight behind that. And so Jesus responds to this profound truth, the situation with the profound truth, and Martha responds as well. But Jesus also responds to this situation with a purposeful emotion. With a purposeful emotion. As we come to the story in verse 32, Martha has had this encounter with Jesus. She goes to tell Mary back at home that she had just seen Jesus and that Jesus was asking to see her. Right? And guess what? Mary's response is exactly identical to that of Martha's. And she says this in verse uh, 33. She said, and I lost my notes here. Here we are. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But what's different in this situation is that as Mary is sharing this information with Jesus, she's weeping, she's crying, and she's showing great emotion. Remember that those who actually came to console Mary thought she was going to go grieve at the tomb in this situation. But Jesus enters in and he doesn't give words like he did with Martha. He responds with intentional emotion. He responds by what we see in verse 35, this idea that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He didn't give her some contrite answer. He didn't try to justify why he waited. 
He didn't remind her of what he said earlier in the chapter 11. He met emotion with emotion. These two words, so simple but yet so profound. Because they reflect the heart of our Savior. As they reflect the heart of our Savior who identifies with our humanity, with our human condition. And he weeps with us. But they also express what the Bible once has said in the Old Testament and prophesied concerning Messiah when it says this in Isaiah 53.3, that he was a man of sorrows and a man acquainted with grief. Certainly in this moment he was a man of sorrows and a man acquainted with grief. But not his sorrow, but identified with ours. Because it says later in that same text in verse 4, Surely he bore our grief. And carried our sorrows. You see, Jesus in this moment is deeply moved by the grief that he sees with Mary. By those that are around Mary trying to comfort. He understands the brevity of what's happening in this situation. But I think he begins to see far beyond what's happening circumstantially in this moment. And he begins to think through what Paul might pen or would pen and Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. That these were the consequences, the underpinnings of the reality of life apart from God. That sin has entered the picture and death is a reality. And he sees the brokenness and he understands what's happening in this moment. And the extent of the reality of death that they are experiencing. And he grieves. He grieves. And I also think that he was thinking perhaps of his own crucifixion, of the reality of what was awaiting him, that ultimately he would go to Calvary and again die a death that he didn't have to do in order that we could have the hope of spending eternity with him. And he's deeply moved. And we see this later in verse 38, this same phrase, deeply moved in the text. As he begins to call out Lazarus from the tomb. And this phrase, deeply moved, is used several times in the New Testament, but twice in this chapter. And it's, it really is, if you look at the Greek here, and I'm not going to say the Greek word, but this idea of deeply moved means that he kind of snorted like a horse. Not very appealing, huh? Jesus snorted like a horse. But he was deeply moved. He shuddered and he was releasing his agony in this moment because of the weight and, and what was happening in this moment. And knowing that, that death has caused such strife and such sorrow and such disappointment. And he feels the weight. I mean, this was an ugly, visceral kind of cry. In the deep shuddering. I mean, it was a whole box of Kleenex kind of cry, right? Anyone ever experienced one of those? Am I the only one? Come on, identify with me. There you go. I like audience participation, right? I just had one of those the other day as I dropped my son off to college. Like, one box Kleenex. Like, here we go. Ugly cry. But this was that ugly cry moment. And Jesus is entering and he's showing compassion. And so the reality is that Jesus identifies with our pain. He identifies with our disappointment. He identifies with our sin condition and he takes on our humanity and he expresses his emotions. Much like he invites us to express our emotions to him. But the story doesn't end there. It's not like Humpty Dumpty who sat on a wall 
And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. Instead, he responds with emotion, intentional emotion, but he performs powerful action. He decides, I'm going to do something about that. And so Jesus in verse 39 says, take away the stone. Now, what's interesting in the text is Martha still questions the ability of Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. And she says this in, in uh, consequence verse in verse 39. Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. Spare the air, Jesus. Don't open the tomb. We don't need that odor. We don't need that stench, right? And, and this is, and like it's not that important that you see him in his grave clothes. We know that you will resurrect him one day. But he says, this is how Jesus responds. He says, really makes a connection back to verse 4 when he had heard the news of Lazarus. And he says, this, this illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. God is going to do something miraculous. He's setting the tone and he says, you know, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe this, you would see the glory of God? Remember, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I have the ability to make this happen. Move the stone. To which Jesus then cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Three simple words. Lazarus, come forth. And verse 44 tells us, the man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. In this moment, Jesus displays his glory and his deity as the one who will ultimately resurrect you and I into the hope and eternal glory of God with God himself in the heavens. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing because he is alive and the reality is that in, because of him, we have a future hope and a future reality. This is not the end of the story. This declaration led to a demonstration of his glory and ultimately what we see here is it further validates that Jesus is the arrival of God's glorious transformation of all things, including our bodies. We will be transformed. I will have hair. I believe it. That is my resurrection reality. So what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us today? One is that we have a new identity in Christ. We have a new identity in Christ. The resurrection story of Lazarus and ultimately Jesus brings hope to our story because of what Jesus accomplished here in this moment. He is alive, and in him we have this new identity. He is the resurrection, and because of that, we have been adopted as sons and daughters into his glorious family. We say here at VCC, fine family here. If we're in Christ, we are one big family in him. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We're no longer defined by the past, what we've done or what we will do because of the reality of what God accomplished for us. We've been resurrected into a new hope and into a new reality. No longer defined. The old is gone. Behold, new things have come. 
And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, new things have come. The old is gone. No longer need to be concerned, have fret or worry about what we've done in the past because Jesus paid for it once and for all at Calvary. And we've been resurrected into a new hope, into a new reality. Something we're going to do next week beautifully demonstrates the reality of our hope and resurrection in Christ. See, we were dead in our sins, but God resurrected us because of his great love for us. We've been resurrected into a new hope. And so baptism beautifully demonstrates the reality and the hope that we have in Christ as we go public with our faith through baptism. And when we come to the baptism, which I think will probably be over in that corner over there, we're going to say, ask them some professional questions. And I remember doing this as a teenager at First Baptist Church of San Mateo, which is across the bay, back in like September of 1980. I know some of you weren't born then, but uh, I digress. So, but as we go into that reality and that future hope, it says that we have been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. And I remember that moment all so clearly because I had trusted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior in August of 1980 at Camp Sugar Pine in Oakhurst, California. But I got to visually experience it, the reality of what God had done for me as I entered the baptism waters and went public with my faith and understood what it meant to be fully buried and immersed in the forgiveness and love of God, to have a new sense of identity, a new sense of hope, and the new reality that I have been adopted into the King of Kings family. And it's no longer what I do, but what Christ has done in me. And so I encourage you, if you've not yet been baptized as a follower of Jesus, maybe it's time to sign up. Maybe Join in celebration next week and go public and experience the reality of that we have a new identity and a new hope in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Secondly, because of what Jesus claims in this moment, because of what he did in resurrecting Lazarus, we have a comforter who identifies with our humanity. We have a comforter who identifies with our humanity. See, Jesus took on fully man, fully God. He took on our humanity. He identifies with it. He wept. He grieved with Mary and Martha in that moment. He grieved over what was happening to mankind and what he ultimately would do. This is why the scriptures say that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We can find comfort in the fact that we are not alone, that God is with us, and that he wants to restore us into a new future, into a new reality. And he resurrects us into a new life and into a new hope. Therefore, we can find joy in the midst of the pain and hope in the midst of the loss and hopelessness because he is with us and he identifies with us. But Jesus doesn't just identify through our tears, but he also triumphs over sin and death once and for all. Therefore, because of that, we have a future hope. We have a future hope. You see, Jesus stands toe-to-toe with the greatest foe known to man, death itself. And he triumphs. He overcomes. Death, where is your sting? There is no, I mean, he just triumphs in this situation. And he brings hope to the reality of what they were experiencing in that moment. He shows up 
with resurrection power. He shows up with exactly what they wanted in this situation. They wanted Lazarus back. But here's the reality of the story. Nothing is truly dead if you put it in the hands of our Savior. Nothing is truly dead if you put it in the hands of our Savior. He wants to resurrect your marriage. He wants to resurrect your relationships with maybe some ostracized family members. He wants to restore the hope that you have lost in your journey with him. He wants to lead you to green pastures. And the reality is, is that Lazarus' story is a preview of our ultimate resurrection in Christ. It's a preview of Jesus' resurrection that would happen just a few days later. But it's a preview of what's going to happen for those who are in Christ. And what a joyous reunion that will be when we're resurrected into the heavens and get to see our Savior face to face for the very first time. Death is not something to be feared because we will see Jesus and we will be with him for all of eternity. We'll experience his resurrection power. We'll experience life eternal with him. You see, Jesus resurrected Lazarus back to physical life. But he resurrects us, in a sense, spiritually as well. This is not just an event. This is not just a story. This is a reality that's true for you and for me. The question is, much like he asked Martha, he asked you and I, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Not just intellectually do you believe this, because this wasn't just a mere intellectual about him. He invites Martha, he invites Mary, he invites us to be in him. To not just merely know about him, but to believe in him. That he is the resurrection. That he is the life. Although Jesus' miraculous power can lead many to him, to learn about him, it's not until we encounter him as the resurrection and the life that we truly experience resurrection power in him. A lot of people say, well, I believe in him. Well, as I said earlier, even the demons believe and they shudder. But do you know him? Are you putting your faith and trust in him as the resurrection and the life? And that's the progression. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, we need to experience resurrection spiritually before we can experience life eternally in him. We've got to believe and trust that Jesus is the one who came to save us, to pay the sin debt, in order that we could have the hope of spending eternity with him. That's the progression. Resurrection, then transformation. And the reality is, is that he invites us to relationship with him. He invites us to come to the table of grace. To know him. To experience a new identity. To receive his infinite emotional capacity to comfort us and to heal and restore us. And ultimately to give us a future hope. 
Because of Jesus, we have a new way of apprenticeship. Because of what he's done, we no longer have to fear or worry that God's some cosmic killjoy that wants to take away all our fun. As we said last week, he's, he brings life abundantly so that we can have life amazing, an amazing life with him in the here and now, but also in the future reality of spending eternity with him. Going back to the beginning, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. And I thought, surely there's got to be more to that story. Surely there's got to be a message of hope for kids that hear that nursery rhyme. And so yesterday I Googled on the Google, you know, the platform, the browser, Jesus and Humpty Dumpty. And this is what I found. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. But along came the king and touched Humpty's soul. Only the king could make Humpty whole. What do you do when you stumble and fall and list the king's horses and all the king's men? But only King Jesus can heal you again. Rejoice, Humpty Dumpty. There's reason to sing. God loves broken people. Go to the king. Yeah. As we come to the table of grace here in a minute, you might identify with some of the questions I asked earlier. God, where are you? Why aren't you answering my prayer? I'm discouraged. I feel defeated. I feel lonely, depressed, discouraged. Jesus wants to resurrect you into a new reality, into a new hope, into a new future, into a new identity in who you are in him. This might be your time to go to the king.